a bunch of trashy daydreams. entering some sort of new moment you know i don't know if it's like a movement or exactly like what you would call it and it's funny because like what i was researching like i wasn't really sure what the roaring 20s were outside of like what the aesthetic was so i looked up what the roaring 20s were specifically and it was this moment of prosperity that has the aesthetic of bootleggers and jazz and, you know, certain kind of fashion and, and gin and flappers and great Gatsby and jazz. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. It's one of those mo movements that it seems really fun. And I can see why young people were like, oh, post pandemic will also be like the roaring twenties. But when I look at it now, oh, this was like really like a, a pinnacle of Western culture in that everything that is fun is in some way funneled into labor. It isn't a period of leisure and spending time in nature or creating something. It's almost like this is like the, the culmination of the second industrial revolution prior to any kind of war happening of people just really taking to this and, and intertwining commerce and work and fun into this moment, which I guess if you look at it that way, maybe this time is really similar to that. Because it seems like everything that people do that we, and we've talked, I think we talked about this with Jonathan is all in some way cycled back into capitalism. Whereas in the decadent movement was like this period of alienation from, from modernity. And that happened, I guess, from the like late 1880s to the 1890s. And it seems like we're going in reverse from whatever our version of the roaring twenties is, which is like people losing their shit on a uh, TikTok and and on zoom and, and just really funneling themselves into the screen into into some sort of new type of alienation from that, that I'm not really sure what it is, but if you look at the, what the decadent period was, it was characterized by self-disgust, sickness at the world, general skepticism, delight and perversion, and employment of crude humor and a belief in a superiority of human creativity over logic and the natural world. That really seems to coincide with this path of the heroic pervert that we've been talking about. It feels like we're moving into our own version of what this kind of decadent moment could be. And it definitely, as all these moments are in some ways, the, the population turning their back on modernity. So I don't know, I feel like this project that you're working on about Cronenberg and thinking about the new flesh is just like, it's coming at the, at the perfect moment and not just coinciding with his, his newest movie. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something I've been trying to think about in terms of, you know, what is the spore or the infection of the Cronenbergian signal from the 80s, you know, in the moment that we grew up, that we were born into, let's say, and then we started growing up. But what what is the effect of it now? You know, so I don't want it to be an entirely nostalgic project in the sense of just looking back and, you know, basking in what I, what I often call like the video basement, you know, in this place that is incredibly <laughs> comforting to me and that, that I do yearn to regress to. But I think I've also always had this sort of fear of regressing to it in this sense that you have to push against that desire, not 
to go totally overboard in the other direction and like cut all ties with the past, but to relate to the past in a way where you're clear with yourself that your goal is to sort of equip yourself for the present. The same way that Cronenberg himself, you know, was dealing with monster movies from the 50s or, you know, the works of Burroughs and Ballard and these people who came before him in order to do what he did in the 80s and 90s. I think now, you know, ourselves being people from the 80s and 90s, it's like we have to take things from that time and say, how can we kind of not just regurgitate, but process that infection and grow it into an actually new flesh now in the 2020s? And, you know, whether that relates to a kind of decadence rather than this just like industrial burnout quality that otherwise I think characterizes the age, you know, with this sort of like Zoom surveillance and the kind of stuff that turns, you know, the idea of being at home into just like another workplace rather than escaping the workplace. I do think there's something to be said for that idea of the heroic pervert is a kind of decadent character and, and is a character who believes in a perverse relation between the present and the past. Because I think like the two commercial and mainstream relations are either, you know, what I was saying before of like this video basement nostalgia, and that's the endless, you know, regurgitation of like, uh, the VHS filter. Yeah. And just the like <laughs> constant, you know, Pamela and Tommy Lee show. And I saw there's a new show about like the making of the Godfather and the Monica Lewinsky show. And just like this endless pop culture of like, let's just yeah. bask in the nineties and the seventies and the eight. And like that stuff, you know, or stranger things that we talked about with Jonathan, you know, if one side's the video basement, the other side's like the Apple store, right. Or it's like this image of just total sleek, you know, we've, we're done with history. Nobody, you know, you're one of the good guys. If you shop here, everyone who doesn't shop here is, you know, one of the bad guys and just buy into that, which is obviously, you know, insane and dangerous also. So I think the heroic pervert is someone who not just disregards, but kind of actively disparages both of those options and tries to forge another path that is kind of sick but by being self-aware of its sickness is healthy. One key component to not getting stuck in this like nostalgic VHS basement, just looking back to nostalgia for, for comfort is to embrace the idea of drift. If anything, this period of time, this, the pandemic years, this, this pause, it should give us a clear-eyed reality of what we should come to expect, which is a certain amount of pain, discomfort, suffering, complexity, alienation, and hardship. But I don't think those things have to be completely negative. And obviously, it's not how you want to live your life, but you can find a lot of vitality in those things without seeing yourself as someone that's victimized, that needs to return to something comfortable or something all-knowing like the Apple store. If anything, this is like maybe one of the greatest comforts of watching a Cronenberg film is that I feel like his films almost function as, as parables where there is a narrative and there are key players, but what you walk away with, especially from his earlier films, is just something far more broad and um, illuminating in the end. And also ironic, you know, not, not in a, there's something we talked about with Eric Davis, you know, irony, not in the sense of just being dismissive or, or kind of being a form of cynicism, but irony in being genuinely ambivalent and accepting that as a good thing. You know, that I think his films are never reducible to a message. You know, they're never saying tech right. is bad, nor are they saying tech is good. They're, they're really trying to do something deeper and say, you know, this is how it functions or this is how it could function 
in a certain person's mind, or this is the kind of uh, response that might emerge in someone's brain from a certain kind of signal or a certain kind of science experiment, let's say, you know, and that feeling of irony and, and sort of being unwilling to carry water for any given side, I think has a really important aesthetic quality and also a political quality of being, you know, not apathetic, but also not just corralled into being a kind of cheerleader for something, you know, to really be a kind of individual, almost like in, in this kind of strange algorithmic era, just being an individual at all is already perverse in a way that to me is very appealing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think the more we move away from denial towards the perverse, the more we can embrace our current moment. And I think if anything, that is what I hope comes out of the the neo-decadent period that is to come. Maybe also it's important to, you know, if we track the history of COVID, it's like to sort of think about what does it mean to be, you know, in an endemic pandemic, you know, or to be in this moment where like something is still very wrong, but it doesn't really make sense to think of it as a state of emergency or as a state of exception. It's sort of like, it's not an exception to anything. It's like, this is what it is, you know? And I think like that way of thinking about it which doesn't mean that you can't take any precautions, but just that you have to have a consciousness about it that you're not, you know, waiting something out. Like you're in the world as it is, and it doesn't seem likely that some like massive change is going to happen at this point, you know. And I think that idea. I, I was almost thinking when you were talking about this sense of like people bunkering down and, you know, seeking comfort that there was during the like height of the pandemic, like in 2020, mm-hmm. there was actually this weird way in which like the Apple Store and the video basement merged. Because it was like we were all at home <laughs> yeah, on our yeah. on our you know supposedly cutting edge technology, but the thing we were seeking was this like totally out of the stick you know like clutching your teddy bear form of comfort, which was understandable at that time. But I do think it's something you have to wean yourself off of, or else you know to, to bring up the gothic, which is what Jonathan Greenaway really really uh, specializes in. You know, if you don't put down that teddy bear in your mind, let's say you know you end up in this position of being. Uh, you know, like Mrs. Havisham and in, in, uh, Great Expectations of like sitting at your wedding table when you're 60 <laughs> and you're rotting dress with your cake and, you know, being lost in this moment of seeking comfort in a sense that it itself becomes extremely discomforting and kind of sinister and even evil in a way. <laughs> I love that you brought up that analogy. And I totally agree that the um, the road to wellness comes via the path of the pervert. And I think that's a great introduction for today's guest, Jonathan Greenaway. Uh, John is a scholar and a researcher with expertise in the intersections of mass culture, critical theory, and theology. He's currently working on a research project aiming to understand the theological importance of horror media in all its forms. Uh, John is also an associate lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. His current book, which we talk about, is his PhD dissertation, and it's called Theology, Horror, and Fiction. He also goes by the online moniker, The Lit Crit Guy, and he hosts a horror movie podcast called The Horror Vanguard. And you can also find his YouTube videos by searching The Lit Crit Guy, and also keep an eye open for an upcoming book of his that he has tentatively titled Capitalism, A Horror Story. Uh, I don't know. This was a this was an awesome conversation. I feel like he said, for one, he's such a kindred soul, and I think 
it also deepened this, this conversation that you and I have been having over the last few months with uh, different authors. I think he's been like a great way to like find some sort of cohesion between a lot of uh, ideas we've had and uh, bring a lot of like new fresh perspective to it as well. Absolutely. And, and to kind of situate the Gothic, you know, in a historical and, and intellectual framework and then to open it up into something, you know, that has resonances in the present, you know, and, and in a sense, I think in terms of our large, our larger conversation, that's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, that in our talk with, with Jonathan, we talk about Frankenstein a little bit. And I think that image of suturing together dead material, you know, of finding cadavers and chopping them up and taking a hand here and a, you know, a knee there and a leg there, you know, and all that, this kind of alchemistic process of, making new life in the present out of the dead materials of the past. But then, you know, I don't think Dr. Frankenstein is, is able to do this, but the thing that I think the sacred pervert can do or the heroic pervert can do is to actually be open to the possibility that whatever new life you create isn't gonna be what you thought it was and might actually be antithetical to you or might be horrifying. And that feeling I think is really important. You know, and something that from an American point of view that we didn't get to talk about that much, but I'm extremely interested in is Southern Gothic, you know, and I would say Faulkner, you know, has really been like a huge influence on me. And I think is a perfect example of this because he's someone who on the one hand is, you know, rooting around in like the swampiest and grossest and kind of most shameful and most sinister aspects of the history of Mississippi and of the South more broadly, and just like the most you know, the things that the South would most like to keep in its like darkest basements and highest attics. And he's really like unearthing these just traumas of the past. And yet at the same time, you know, speaking of the 1920s, like him, you know, writing in the 1920s, by doing that, by playing around with these like rotten materials of the past, he basically invented like the most modern style in all of American literature. And that fact to me is like the most beautiful thing that that you could possibly do. And if like we could do something like that in our 20s, you know, in our 2020s, that would be, you know, the supreme good from a from an artistic point of view, I think. Absolutely. Long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. So asking asking anyone who works in Gothic studies to define the field um, is always a pretty I'm aware what I'm about to say may be professionally slightly controversial, but <laughs> um, so the Gothic, there are a number of ways that you can conceptualize it. Harmon conceptualizing it is as a particular uh, set of aesthetic and formal concerns that emerged in the English novel between 1760 and, ooh, depending on where you want to draw the line, 1820. Um, and this is the kind of classic Gothic novels of like, uh, Shelley or Anne Radcliffe or uh, Matthew Lewis, which are concerned with the violent reemergence of the past into the present, or, or in the case of something like Anne Radcliffe, the the contemporary heroine is forced into something, uh, a kind of uh, uh, the violence of the past. Right? It doesn't doesn't reemerge in the present, but you're kind of thrown back in you know, trapped in the haunted castle with the lascivious uncle. Um, basically, the Gothic is is a series of con concerns relating to history and how we understand history. And this uh, is very intimately tied up within senses of self and, of course, senses of how society is organized 
um, and in the era of capitalism, uh, economics inevitably comes into that. You know, Marx's uh, work is full of deeply gothic metaphors about the ways in which, um, and it's been a principal concern of like a whole tradition of Marxist theorists to talk about like the the ways in which uh, capitalism is not simply violent, but capitalism is in is in a sense uh, haunting us. Um, we are our sense of history is destroyed by 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 capitalism. So the Gothic is starts as this kind of cluster of novels um, and immediately hybridizes and spreads. So we can refer to it, we can refer to it formally as a set of of narrative concerns. We can refer to it aesthetically as a kind of style, um, as a, a particular set of aesthetic markers. We can. Um, Perhaps the most interesting way of referring to it, though, is as a kind of discourse and epistemology uh, relating to to what we can know and how we can kind of talk about what is often regarded as being outside of the terrain of the kind of positivist, rationalist uh, worldview. And do you feel like that was part of why it emerged at the beginning of the 19th century is that the 18th century had more of this enlightenment idea that we could overcome it. And the 19th century was starting to feel like we can't, you know, that the irrational was coming back and we're done with it. Yeah. There's, there's a huge, there's this huge kind of preoccupation with the status of, of the mind. You have that, you have the influence of kind of German idealism, especially through translators like Samuel Taylor Coleridge. You have the idea romanticism as a movement is about the kind of perfectibility of mankind. Right. And this, it kind of collapses, but it's born out of the, those, those concerns and, of course, kind of religious and political radicalism, right? The French Revolution is the, the late 1700s. Uh, and there is, in, in, in the English Gothic, there is a very particular strain of fear around Europe. Europe is, Europe is Catholic. Europe is politically radical. R Europe is um, unstable in a ways that the kind of sober, sensible protestant english political imagination defines itself in opposition to and and really if if we think of this in political terms you can see you see that traje that trajectory holds up right uh frankenstein's creature is uh, in a sense a kind of amalgamation uh it's the creature of uh frankenstein gets gets built into a lot of um political pamphleteering of the day right um and the, this idea of the mob over, overturning the, the, this, this body that's been stitched together from the poor and the dead, overturning the Hobbesian Leviathan of state is a very kind of prescient concern uh, in, in the kind of decades after Frankenstein's first published. And it merges along with a kind of nascent uh, identity of, a, of a, what we would call the political working class. Uh, Dracula at the close of the 19th century is is the monster of 19th century capitalism. Um, you know, this is the vampire. The vampire motif is something Marx and Engels use. It's it's uh, it's something that holds true as England uh, and and kind of we have the industrial revolution and there's this li literally this mechanization by which uh, the the blood, sweat, and bodies of of working people are turned into so much grist for the mill. So I think these, these two texts really do bookend uh, the 19th century in some super interesting ways. And surround Marx himself, right? Who's writing right between the two. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, in this book, in Theology, Horror, and Fiction, 
Marx is kind of the absent center, I think. I was flicking back through it. It's a little bit weird reading it because in some ways I'm sort of like, oh, who let this who let this idiot write a book? And then there are there, then there are passages where I'm like, actually, this is this is all right. Um, so, but but like Marx is really the kind of absent center, like the hinge that gets you um, between something like uh, Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray in the 1880s and something like uh, Bronte's Jane Eyre, which are which are both in their own ways very bound up in kind of this question of like what does it today what does it mean to live in a world that increasingly uh seems very positivistic and very rationalized and mechanized and controlled but also at the same time not at all like uh david and i were talking about this before about how the difference between the decadent period of the past and how that is just so completely different than it is, I would say, now, if you can want to look at this time as a decadent phase, because it, it functions without pleasure and or any kind of actual physical labor. You know, in the past, you could think of decadence as being this, you know, people doing opium and all these like great artists creating artwork and contributing to culture. And now... The idea of doing something like that means that you would have to be confined to your phone or your computer. You'd be looking at porn, playing video games, like heightening your status through social media. There's Shop- this shopping really... for random shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's all like really tied up in, in to me, what is like a, a truly gothic phase where we're animating a lot of dead systems and it seems like we're doing something but actually we, we are just kind of like funneling ourselves into capitalism yeah um, mark mark fisher called it a depressive hedonia and, and the, mm. the vampire castle right yeah yeah so there's this idea that you are you are um atomized completely and, and told that all of these things will make you feel good uh but you are in this kind of depressive state where all you can do is kind of seek pleasure um at, at a very sort of like intangible level and i think mm-hmm. you're right i think you're right if if the monster of like if the monster of the 19th century is is the vampire and the monster of the 20th century is is and the, all of this the post-war 20th century is the zombie then the monster of the 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 kind of increasingly technologized age is is absolutely the the ghost mm-hmm. like we're we're haunted by the possibility of something better right the internet haunts us um, and all of these things are kind of like they're sort of like rituals carried out by an economy that doesn't realize it's dead. <laughs> you know, it's 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 right, it's, right. Ne- it's necrotic neoliberalism, right? Is there any actual production? Increasingly, no. It's the artificial in- it, the artificial creation of digital scarcity um, in order to create the appearance of genuine commodity exchange. Right? There, it, there's nothing. There's nothing there. Right? The corpse is rotten. Um, Fisher talks about this really kind of wonderfully as the, as the people like uh, Wolfgang Strick uh, says like the corpse, corpse of neoliberalism is dead on the stage, but there's nothing that has the strength to kind of clear it out of the way. So the, the various kind of occultists of neoliberalism are basically doing the same things in the hope that they can somehow animate this corpse. And, and like the question of if it's really dead or if you know, by being dead, it even needs to be reanimated. Even those questions feel blurry. Like there's this weird sense where it feels like it's dead and alive, almost in a, you know, like you said, a post-zombie way. Because with zombies, 
you know, there's some sense that they do die and then become undead or even a ghost. Like it's like, it comes back from the dead to haunt you. Whereas this, you know, the kind of capitalism we have now feels just like, it's almost like that Peter Jackson uh, dead alive. It's just both at once. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Everything seems very hollow, right? You know, there doesn't seem to be much uh, weight or substance to, to, to capitalism, which depends upon, uh, I mean, essentially, uh, since 2008, has depended upon ever-increasing abstract financialization. Yeah, yeah. Like, and now we're talking about NFTs and all this, like, kind of false scarcity that's giving value to intangible things. But I think also what's, like, animating that in the background is this tension that our present is totally defined by the past. And that to me is like one of the truest markers of a gothic state. I mean, like just thinking about like the slogan of the last four years here in America was make America great again yeah. without ever thinking about like what that means and how <laughs> subjective that is, especially for a country this new that's built on a sense of colonialism and, and, and capitalism. And it also leads to, and it's same, same thing with NFTs and this this real like lack of value in any in what we're doing especially since we're not doing anything um physical is that there that there ends up being this like immense sense of unspent energy and we're not sure like where to put it and you know bringing it back to the decadent period like those artists created these amazing works that like are still great to this day that's also what I think maybe plays against the Gothic, which I, I'm curious to get your opinion on. To me, one of the, like the most important like keystones of the Gothic is a sense of romance. And that seems to be something that's just like completely void and, and gone from our, our present time. I mean, uh, quite arguably, yeah. Or, or at least in some ways kind of ma- marginal to the present time, right? This, what, who's it? Alain Badieu has that amazing thing about um, the whole the whole point of, of dating apps is that you fall in love without falling, right? There's no, mm, there's no, mm-hmm. you know, he, he tells the old romantic story of you're walking down the street and you slip and you fall and somebody runs over to help you up. And there's this moment where you meet, right? There's a, there's a kind of connection um, and it comes out of something that's potentially kind of painful or embarrassing. And, and about uh, losing control. And about losing control. And the idea of the idea, that's entirely antithetical to, to the idea of like digital connection. It's entirely, it's entirely platform mediated. It's entirely on your own terms. It's falling in love without falling. Um, but at the same time, I think there, the relationship, I think you're completely right that the Gothic is, in, is intimately bound up with this relationship of the present to history, which even implicitly this kind of opens a sort of negative possibility for the future, right? It isn't, it's not utopian in a direct sense, but simply uh, by returning to the history, to history itself, you find kind of untapped resources, you find untapped potential. Um, you know, uh, again, the famous Fisher term is uh, hauntology, which again is is borrowing from Derrida's Spectres of Marx and Spectres of Marx opens with a really that famous uh, reading of Hamlet that time is out of joint, like this idea of a future that never arrived, but at the same time, in the past and present, even in its even in the kind of uh, flotsam and jetsam of culture, you might see potential areas uh, 
that we can kind of prize open to find some of that creative energy and un, um, unlock it in very kind of unexpected ways. Yeah, maybe that's, you know, I think with Mark Fisher, especially in um, The Weird and the Eerie, when he talks about like burial, that, you know, that band or that artist, and, uh, you know, a lot of these feelings of like being in the world that you thought was going to be the future when you were younger, and that in some yeah. temporal sense is, but, you know, in this ontological sense, being eaten at by the feeling that it doesn't feel like the future or that it's like a lost future that never came. I wonder in a way if the counterproductive and sort of mainstream solution to that is, you know, just like swallow that feeling. Like that's not, you shouldn't feel that way. That's not the right feeling. And the more productive response is to be like, I wonder if it's not late to go back into the past, you know, in my mind or in, you know, in your reading or in your, in your thinking and actually rescue some of those things that are, you know, not to just give in to nostalgia, but to like activate certain possibilities that are still latent and are maybe even more interesting now because they're undead, you know, that there's something from the past that exists in the present. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is uh, something Ernst Block writes about a huge amount, this idea that like even in daydreams, even in, even in the kind of, there's this sense that the future is not yet finished. Um, and, and, and I actually think that dissatisfaction, that kind of hauntological stasis is a, is a, is in, in, even without saying so offers a sort of, uh, there is a utopian fragment to the, to, to, any, to anyone who recognizes this idea that actually what's, wasn't the future supposed to be good? You know, even, even <laughs> by, even by asking that question, what you do is you open up the space to talk of the future, right? Instead of thinking of capitalism as this kind of endless now, this sort of gray teleology that, you know, maybe we can make some kind of strange changes to, and we can kind of tinker with. Um, I actually think the, the, the Gothic is a really good resource because it shows the ways in which the present itself is never stable, right? Like mo monsters will claw their way out of the grave. It, and there is a, there's, there's something kind of traumatic and terrifying about it. But also it shows the ways in which um, history itself is this ever uh, constructed thing. You know, the ruins of the past are still, are still here. And the past contains within it these pot potentialities, which can never be completely obscured by, you know, the gray horizon of capitalist realism. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the beautiful, you know, if you extend it to Southern Gothic, that's like the beautiful Faulkner line, right? If the past isn't over, it isn't even past, you know? Yeah, and, and I wonder if absolutely. like the two failures of the present, the two ways that you can be trapped in a <laughs> vampire castle of the present is like either you disavow the past entirely, right? So that's the kind of neoliberal capitalist, you know, we're moved on, it's efficiency and optimization or whatever. Or you become a kind of tragic, romantic, yeah. gothic figure of someone who's just like, um, so tied to the past that you just can't even bear to conceive of the future. Whereas the somewhere in between is like this, it's not a solution, but it's like a method of um, how, how do I embrace the past, but for the sake of the future. There's a really there's a really interesting block line in the beginning of the principle of hope where he talks about the fact that the opposite of hope is not fear, um, and because actually hope like fear are both future oriented. They're a consciousness pointing towards the future. You can't be afraid of something that has happened, right? Uh, the opposite of hope is, is uh, in Block's work uh, nostalgia. 
to be constant. Mm-hmm. And this this absolutely connects to what you were saying with like this idea of the kind of rom- what we could call like the romantic reactionary. Um, and I think the the uh, that nostalgia is is exactly what you were talking about. This idea of like, oh, we have to get back to something, right? We have to return to some sort of uh, a kind of retro eschatology. You know, the world isn't going to end. We'll remake the world, right? We'll get back to when things were okay. But I actually think hope and fear are these two very interestingly dialectically related um, affects, right? These these orientations towards the world, where um, Fear is transformative, as is hope. Like the the encounter with with the Gothic is like, what what does fear and hope have to do with now? So yeah, I I think this is why this is why increasingly I've been drawn to uh, Bloch's work, which is you know deeply religiously informed, but is also a, in its own way a kind of unorthodox Marxism that is trying to kind of provoke. <laughs> Bloch calls it the inscru the inscrutable question. Um, this idea of like how how do you how do you open your mind in order to think beyond the strictures of a very strict one direction of history, right? This we're post we're post Fukuyama, right? We're post the end of the end of history. Um, we're we're here up to our knees in flood water and and debris. Um, so the question is not to to go oh well. The question is like, what do we build out of the ruins? What do we build out of the wreckage? What do we build out of these monsters and ghosts and dreams and nightmares that we've been surrounded by for, you know, uh, all of culture, it seems. But I would also say that um, fear and hope are both endpoints of process. And I think another thing that is, I would say, woven into this this gothic structure is how we process trauma. And that's like a word that seems to be like really, it really defines our current age, you know, for everything from like this right wing, you know, you're a baby, fuck your feelings to like the the importance of uh, being a victim and like how you present that. But it seems like no matter how you want to get to fear or hope, like you can't be traumatized and haunted by the present and existing in like this sense of um, this sense of decay and like a constant state of pain. And I think if you're always looking back, you're going to just stay in this, like in this place of stasis and, Obviously, the longer you stay there, it will start to pull you into the realm of the uncanny, and maybe it'll pull you towards religion, and it'll pull you towards capitalism, and it'll pull you towards any kind of abstraction you can get to to ease that tension. And that seems to be like a very like hard thing to, to pinpoint and articulate within this time that makes it feel so dark and so gothic um and i'm curious like does that does that seem to ring true to you like it almost seems like it's such a broad question or broad concept that it almost necessitates like a sense of deranged humor to to deal with (laughs) and process you know what i mean like this is why we go to horror at least uh, you know outside of the more the more you know superficial aspects of it it's like fuck you know like there has to be some sort of pressure valve that we can we can go to even if we don't get it to get out of that that sense of stasis uh yeah uh, over on uh, horror vanguard we did um an interview with uh, a writer behind the english heretic uh collection collection uh 
uh, called Andy. And Andy said, you know, we didn't get into horror movies because we wanted to like do discourse. We got into horror movies because horror movies are fucking cool. <laughs> like, like, but but what's what keeps us coming back is precisely this, right? This idea of that even in the midst of even in the midst of like what we take to be a completely sealed totality, right? You look at the world mm-hmm. and you go, nothing could ever conceivably be different. Like we're shown the ways in which not only does this conceal kind of the strangest horror. I think the great example here is uh, Carpenter's Halloween, right? Suburbia is a nightmare. Suburbia is this endless, endlessly reproducible, uh, anonymized kind of mist that you can lose yourself in completely. But beneath that, like, what is Car- what is what is Halloween about? It's it's about the fact that beneath it, there there is this almost almost kind of unstoppable violence that that underpins all of that quote unquote normality. Um. And so I think horror is, is not only a release valve, it, it actually shows us the ways in which the world that we inhabit, despite what it may appear to be, you know, this, this kind of, um, this, this sort of blank void of just flat phenomenological objects, it has, it has this kind of seething morass of affect and drives and violence that sort of bubbles away under the surface. Um, and this 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 is a way of kind of going that this can never be entirely expunged right the 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 sort of uh as you talked about the the necrotic stasis of the present only is is like paper thin and horror is a way of kind of pushing your finger through the through the through the backing board and kind of finding the kind of genuinely the blood underneath it yeah, and tapping into that sense of unspent energy that's just like building and building and mutating there. Like it has to come, whether it be through the weird or through the gothic. I mean, there has to be some sort of, you know, way way to channel that. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Yeah. It, and and try as it might, it can never be totally. You can't. You can't get rid of it. You know, the whole the whole point of capitalism is this kind of ever progressing. Uh, ever more rationalized, quantified, measurable uh, society, but um, it is haunted by things it can never. Co- it, it's haunted by ghosts, by monsters that it can never completely exercise. Right. Look, part of the strangeness, especially of this moment, if it's you know may- maybe late capitalism or who knows how late it is in, <laughs> in terms of capitalism's trajectory, but it feels late certainly. Part of the tension, I feel like, is this uncertainty about how long, you know, pseudo normalcy that feels, you know, undergirded by blood and terror and, and, you know, lunatic laughter and like all this stuff, how long that feeling can persist without actually changing, right? So it's like, on the one hand, we have the sense that, you know, there's something very ominous and, and maybe even evil about the suburbs, but then it takes art to present us with this idea that underneath it is a kind of tangible and relatable evil like Michael Myers or like uh, Blue Velvet or something like that. Whereas sometimes I wonder if that itself is a kind of wishful thinking and like the actual experience is that you never see it concretized. You just feel that there's something wrong with it and that it can't go on forever. But, you know, maybe this is a more cosmic horror like uh, Legatian possibility but it's like the really horrifying possibility is that it actually can and like nothing can change it 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, Ligotti's Ligotti's a super interesting writer for precisely this um, this idea. Um, but like, so much of like, even for someone so bleak, so much of Ligotti is concerned with transformation, right? Um, like stories about stories about um, people who have an encounter with something that threatens to fundamentally alter their consciousness, like fundamentally uh, kind of create a new kind of subjectivity. And I think w- why I find Ligotti so useful is precisely the fact that he shows that that's that in itself, right? If things really were to be radically different, that in itself is kind of horrifying, right? <laughs> you know, if we really were to be able to kind of peel away the skin of the world and see all of that unspent energy, all of that, all of that, um, that, that, that terrifying libidinal economy bubbling up, like that, that's, that in itself is nightmarish. And the kind of worrying thing for anyone who thinks of themselves as kind of being interested in sort of, you know, revolution or a, or like, would you want that? You know, if you could see the true extent of, uh, of what it would mean to be, to, to, to be a different kind of, different kind of subject living in a different kind of world. Um, there's something awful about that. <laughs> and perhaps, you know, on a spiritual level, like imperceptible, because, you know, there's the idea that if you were to be truly transformed into a new person or know it because you wouldn't be you. So like maybe that's already happened, but we can't conceive of it because yeah. we can't imagine who we were before. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know, Bl- Bl- Block says that in a way human history has not really started because we've still been struggling to be kind of humans, <laughs> right? So it's like we, he, he, uses, he uses a kind of really old German phrase, which is um, uh, the upright gate, you know, like walking upright uh, at, at home in the world. And he says, we haven't even gotten to that point yet. <laughs> yeah, or it's like Heidegger's uh, what is called thinking, right? About you yeah. know, the idea that maybe we haven't even started thinking yet. Right, which yeah. whenever I see that book on my shelf, I always think it's what was I thinking? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, you know, just to maybe this might be a bit of a left turn, but I do wonder about our specific generation because I'm assuming we're all like more or less around the same age, but we're also going to be this first generation that grew up with the internet, where it was both seen as something that was like cutting edge but also this repository of like dead skin and old ideas that never go away. Like we'll be the first people that when we die, all of our thoughts, desires, images will be kind of fossilized in the internet that maybe in the future, this will change. But I do wonder if like in the background of all of this, do you see the internet as like an intensely Gothic device? Oh, like so, so much. (laughs) <laughs> uh, like uh, to the point where I think it's it's it, like intensely intensely gothic, um, and I think the increasing centralization of the internet um, has made it a very haunted space, right? So uh, much so, um, and we have to be there. There isn't there really isn't a way of kind of going. How do how do you how do you live with not just the, the past in a historical sense, but how do you live? with that which is past now um you know facebook facebook profiles for people who have passed away they become these these digitized memorials and you oh, my phone my phone pings me with birthdays of friends that have died and i don't even know how to turn it off right like we 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 have this idea of like 
it, it's why the 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 kind of discourse that emerged a couple of years ago over the right to be forgotten, I think, is is super interesting, and will probably re- oh. return in in some ways. Um, but the the internet is haunted. The internet is this kind of wasteland full of digital ghosts of like dead links of like I, everyone's had that feeling of like a blog that they used to read all the time and then suddenly it doesn't update and it hasn't updated for years and you don't you don't really know the person but you feel like the abs the uh the absence of a kind of signal that stopped broadcasting as it were right yeah and 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 the potential that uh some archaeologist a hundred years from now can easily find it and it might mean something completely different, but we just can't even conceptualize like what that kind of fragmentation will feel like. Right. I, the internet. The internet is. Um, the internet is is profoundly ha- haunted and haunting. Um, like, I I don't know if you ever go back and like read read your old uh, like Facebook posts or like Twitter posts from when you first joined the website. And there's this incredibly surreal f- idea of like being haunted by a projection of your past self. Um, yeah, or your past avatar, yeah. which is even more haunting. So we have to we have to find a way of of living with ghosts. I think you know uh, the metaverse uh, web web three is only going to intensify that process. Can't argue with you there, but like bringing it back to horror. Now that we've passed this black mirror stage. Do you think we've exhausted the potential of how we represent this turning of uh, technology? Like, where, where do you think this is going to go now that we've already done cyberpunk? We've already had body horror. Like, where do you see the zeitgeist moving into? Um, well, I was just watching Titan uh, today, mm. which I think is... You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, which, which I, I, I am actually really interested in. Basically, the the resurgence of there are two things which I think will happen. Which is perhaps well, perhaps I'll bring up three. One, I think we will eventually get a good, uh, a really good, big, successful technology horror film. Uh, American cinema, especially, has really struggled with doing like web based horror. Um, there have been a, f- yeah, there have been a few out of like uh, out of like Japan or other Asian countries which have a more interesting and in a, in a way kind of ahead of the curve take on technology. Yeah, Pulse, absolutely the one I was thinking of. I, I still show Pulse every semester, and students still like totally get it. Like it really yeah. resonates, even with people who were born after the time it takes place in. Yeah, and you're so right. And it's strange for a country that creates this technology and in a lot of ways created a lot of these super zeitgeisty horror movies to have such a feeble grasp and understanding on how to present it as horror. I think the biggest one like out of American horror cinema has been like the Unfriended series. Um, I don't even know what that is. But, yeah, yeah, th- those are interesting. What um, is it? It's like a Skype horror basically, but it's all like in a in, in an interface. Like there's that movie Host, that might be British, right? Or Irish that came out maybe uh, yeah yeah it was like a zoom we, horror movie we covered that on we covered that on horror vanguard which um was kind of flawed but showed that there was a really good idea at the core of it so that 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 i think will happen the other two things that i think we're going to see a resurgence of um is folk horror which has absolutely been happening for like the last five years or so and i think like with the like witch yep like what's folk horror uh even even in a way like uh robert eggers other film the lighthouse has a kind of folk horror element to it right <laughs> okay okay yeah, I got it. Mid- yeah midsummer yeah, yeah. definitely uh yeah midsummer um 
and body horror body horror will will return because if we if we don't really yet know how to make horror movies about the internet what what that returns us to is where is the where is the weak point conceptually speaking in that chain of technology which makes up social existence and it's it's the flesh and blood person right that's where the that's where all of the pressure points are well that's where the spirit almost is it's back in the body yeah absolutely um and so body horror body horror is not going away and actually what what can body do and what might the body become i think will become very pressing questions and that might take us back to frankenstein in a way too you know I mean, something i was thinking about when you were talking about um you know a possible cure for a ontological state of mind of you know not fighting it but also not just giving into pure nostalgia but sort of returning to seemingly dead materials yeah. and being open to the possibility that they're undead you know and frankenstein is perfectly that right uh yeah and so much so that these he it's a super interesting novel for exactly this reason which is that victor expects his creature to not be able to speak um and the the big horror for victor is not not only can these dead materials like this body stitched together out of the out of the bodies of the poor and the sick um not only can it speak but it is phenomenally articulate it talks about milton it talk, like the creature talks about uh history it talks about poetry it talks about um philosophical rights and and even touches on the law so like the thing that that horrifies victor frankenstein the character is that this this thing that he has managed to to kind of piece together not not only does it work his process but it produces something so much greater than his own estimation oh my god it's almost like the it's almost like us interfacing with an algorithm which will obviously lead to AI where we get on these platforms, realize that we're not only not talking to one another, even though we think we are, we're speaking to the platform and feeding the machine directly. But then we're also speaking into almost like all of our like worst impulses. And like, literally we're all talking into the void while realizing that the void is us. So it's maybe like some, maybe too grand of a, of a, of a picture, but it almost seems like we're collectively writing like the next great Gothic novel. It's already there. It's just not going to, it'll be hard to condense into book form. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it won't be, but it, it will play out immediately. It'll play out in a participatory way. And even if you don't, if you go, well, I'm not, I won't participate. It will roll on without you anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like ultimately we can never get past the uh the face-off level of uh <laughs> body horror. <laughs> we'll keep going back to that and be like, I don't know. Seems like a simple idea, but grant in, in the long run, it's it's all we got. It's funny that Nicolas Cage is like a spirit animal of this moment. Like it's a very improbable but yeah. but kind of great resurgence. <laughs> uh yes, yeah, so like films like Mandy. Uh, yeah, yeah, which is just phenomenal. Which is uh, one of one of my favorite horror films in the last five years. Oh, me too. You know, it's funny. Um, I had seen so. You know, what was his first movie called? Beyond the Black Rainbow. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a bit of a side 
tangent here, but kind of a funny story. And it's kind of shocking how many psychic like stories I have about taking acid on this podcast for somebody <laughs> like that doesn't do it anymore. But um, it was my birthday. This was this was quite a while ago. Whenever that movie came out, I think that was like seven or eight years ago. And uh, I'd gone out with a bunch of friends and like got just complete. You know, it was my birthday. Everybody's buying me shots. Got completely blacked out. Um, and I had another friend days before had given me uh, a gummy bear that had acid in it. And I had it like in my kitchen somewhere. Like I was like, I don't know, man. Thank you. <laughs> One day, maybe there'll be an appropriate time to take this. But without knowing that night, I must have come home and taken it mm -hmm. and blacked out. And all I remember is waking up at like four in the morning and it was raining outside and I was in bed with my girlfriend and my dog. And like, I woke up and I was like, I'm fucking tripping. I was like, what? Like, is this a dream? And my dog got up and I was like, there's a fucking animal in my bed. I can't believe there's an animal here. Like I, I like couldn't, you know, wrap my head around it. And then I like went to the kitchen to get a water. And I was like, oh fuck, I must've taken that that acid that fucking gummy bear mm -hmm. <laughs> i was like oh my god i can't believe this is happening to me and i had downloaded beyond the black rainbow and i i was just like you know what i'm gonna like just pull the covers up and watch this movie and the movie is like watching it in that state was pretty fun it's pretty you know it's it's kind of almost meant to be seen in that state yeah yeah entirely the right way of watching a panel yeah, exactly movie. <laughs> like almost like comically so like i remember my girlfriend woke up and she was like what the fuck are you doing and i'm like you don't want to know <laughs> <laughs> i know i've been sitting here but you have you don't want to ever know about like the places my mind went to but point being is um when mandy came out i'd seen the trailers for it and i remember that experience and i was like you know what I'm going to take mushrooms and see Mandy. And I did it. And I wrote the director on, um, on Twitter and he responded to me, you know, he was like, that is, I said, he, he wrote, I suggest you not do that, but thank you for watching my <laughs> film. Like something like totally like nice and quaint and tame like that. But uh, that, that experience was uh, just fully wonderful. It reminded me of, um, seeing movies as a child and not even because of like being on acid or something but there's just something about the way that movie invokes nostalgia that's just wonderful you know what i mean like you don't feel like you're watching stranger things looking for the crumbs that you might recognize from the past there's just something about that movie that always reminds me about of going to the video store and seeing the covers of the vhs copies which were usually like art you know what i mean like they were like airbrushed art drawings that were not stills from the movie and i felt i still continue to this day feel this way about books there's the object then there's the picture and then there's the promise of where that rendering of the narrative might take you isn't this the cool thing though of precisely what i was talking about with the difference between like a return to history and a return to nostalgia right i i mm -hmm. what you what you said there were you talking about str stranger things is nostalgia right stranger totally. stranger things is it traps you kind of conceptually traps you in con your your consciousness doesn't and it's doesn't, like about wallowing yeah but mandy and and beyond the black rainbow and and so many other really good historical horror films restore history to you right where it's not just nostalgia but it's that sense of mm. of potential right that's that fe yes. that feeling of uh the, the shock of the new right that encounter with something that is 
not not simply a, like scratches the, the 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 part of our brain which goes ooh familiar thing is familiar <laughs> but <laughs> yeah yeah but actually goes do you remember a moment of kind of aesthetic encounter right that moment where your your consciousness your subjectivity meets something new that is fundamentally transformative Yes. And it's not just novelty. You're in a world within the world. Mm -hmm. And it's like a place that you always want to come back to. Like, that's why you go towards art. And I think it relates to what we were saying before about hope and fear, right? That the kind of pure nostalgia, like uh, Stranger Things, neutralizes both of those feelings, right? And it's about sort of returning to you know, a closed, cozy room, right? It's like, you know, remembering my basement when I was a kid and my pajamas and my cartoons and like, you know, something that is comforting, yeah, yeah. but not not helpful. Like there's no potential to it. Whereas returning to history, you know, I always feel this when I'm like editing a novel and I'm sort of like reading the draft and I'm trying to remember, you know, what was I trying to do? And if I can really get in the right frame of mind, I feel both hope and fear, right? I feel the hope yeah. of like, maybe I could really do it and the fear of like, maybe I'll fail. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, but that's yeah. a good place to be, right? I think one of the reasons horror has so much power, especially at the, at the moment, is so much of, of contemporary mainstream culture is predicated upon this idea of like nostalgia, familiarity, and comfort, right? Just, just giving you the same thing, but in slightly different configurations, you know, everything has an expanded universe. Everything has a franchise. Everything is is this smooth, seamless horizon. Of, and like horror is horror is uh, deliberately violent and obscene and transgressive, but also yeah, and not a pre-made world. Not a pre-made world, and actually throws you back into not not the familiar, even though it does have very familiar patterns and structures. But it, at its best throws you back into history, throws you back into the moment of encounter. Yeah, I wonder if that's, you know, thinking about theology and, and Marx again, I wonder if it's a related sense that, I suppose a lot of this has to do with like American, you know, anti-Soviet propaganda. But if we created this binary where it was like, what the mainstream understanding of Marxism, at least as it related to communism, was was that it was entirely, you know, atheistic and anti-spiritual, Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, capitalism was by default some kind of spiritual war against it. Or that would be the like McCarthy era thing, right? But I wonder if part of what we're trying to talk about now is re-encountering the spirituality within Marxism itself and to say that there is actually this kind of ghostly and numinous and yeah. exciting and horrifying power that we can't just claim to be done with. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things that really sort of spring to mind here. One is um, Vivian Gornick's uh, great book, The Romance of American Communism. Um, which is an oral an oral history of um, predominantly uh, immigrants and, and working class people who are involved in the Communist Party in the in the states in the first couple of decades of the 1900s, and one of them describes describes reading Marx as like fireworks going off in your head when you have the the moment where you realize that you have a mind, you have an intellect, and you can do things with it. Um, and to to put this back in the context of the Gothic, there's this idea of um, in a, in a way, the kind of classic Gothic novels, they emerge alongside what we would kind of call realism as a fictional form. Um, and realism is about its psychological veracity, right? It's about representing consciousness. Um, and the Gothic kind of shows that there are all of these non-rational elements that 
have the irritating habit of just hanging around and we don't necessarily really know what to do with those things. So I I, I think you're completely uh, correct. This is why Block and, and Benjamin are so interesting because they recognize this um, kind of existential, that this metaphysics that is sort of running through uh, what Block calls the, the warm stream of Marxism, this idea uh, that, that runs alongside what he calls the cold stream, which is economistic and determinist and teleological. And he says, actually, what you need is both. You have to have you have to have this warm stream that talks about human emancipation and potentials and processes and the the non-material because without it you end up with something that is kind of dead yeah or you end up with with dr frankenstein being shocked that the monster can think <laughs> yeah precisely <laughs> precisely and would you consider a movie like Titan something that's like post-Gothic? Because I saw this movie again after I'd sent it to you. I'd seen it when it came out in the theaters. And I think the first time it just kind of blew my mind, like on an aesthetic level. But what I thought was interesting that felt maybe potentially post-Gothic that I, I'm curious to hear what you think. But the fact that like gender and biology didn't matter cars and humans felt interchangeable tenderness and violence went hand in hand like in some ways it seemed like post body horror and post gothic and i know the movie also kind of just blows you away like on an aesthetic level in a way yeah i do kind of agree but like i think it's also a mistake to say there's ever like a increasingly it's very rare for it to be like a pure something to be a kind of purely gothic film because really, the, one of the very earliest things the Gothic does is it hybridizes and it, it adapts and it, it, it kind of latches onto other modes and styles and aesthetics. Um, so yeah, I do kind of agree with you, but I'm also like, uh, is, it, is it post-body horror when, when we still have the, the, a kind of recognizable body? Um, what's, what's super interesting about uh, Titan is the ways in which consciousness seems to be almost inaccessible, right? Just how little that they talk, mm. there's no access. Everything is exterior. Everything is focused on the body. And really what's super interesting to me is the question like post-body horror or is it kind of like post-consciousness? Is it post-human, what we would call like human subjectivity? It's almost like it's arrived at true body horror for yeah. the first time. Yeah, where, where there is no, there is no kind of, there is no kind of like non-materiality. Like it, it is, it is in Cronenbergian terms, all about the new flesh. Yeah, you know what really cemented that for me this time, the second time that I'd seen it, that didn't even occur to me the first time. Right before she dies at the end of the movie, she reveals her real name. Uh, it's right before she actually gives birth yeah. and dies. And it's kind of, it's a fast moment, but this time I was, and he like gives her this look of extreme recognition and it, it's almost like feels shocking when she says her name. It is like almost at that, that moment where all of these ideas culminate everything from, you know, gender and, and biology and motherhood and victimhood and, and love and, and tenderness like come out in yeah. this this hybrid mutant baby that in of itself was kind of a, a great grand finale to us arriving at the new flesh. Uh, yeah, I think it's incredible. I think it's I think it's just incredibly rich as well. 
and I, I think there's so there's evidence for like a, a multitude of really strong and persuasive ways of reading it. Um, you can you can read it through uh, all of those ways that you've suggested. But what's what's I think the mark of someone quite artistically brave is to refuse the closure of giving you one definitive way of reading it. I, I really like this idea that it's trying to get at a way of expressing a kind of love or subject beyond language, right? And, but and that final yeah. point where she reveals her name uh, it, it is ex- exceptionally powerful because it's the first, it's the first bit of like genuine linguistic connection, right? Where we connect, connecting not just on a kind of physical level, but on the intangible level of language and, and truth right that like most of the other things she said have been various forms of lies up until then yeah 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 or all lies, or just yeah. all lies. <laughs> right. like the whole movie is just right, them right. lying to exactly. each other but but and and kind of quite tragically choosing to believe those lies because those lies are necessary not for the other person but for our own sense of self yeah i mean i was thinking i was comparing it to crash you know which is obviously a, a big influence in terms of ballard and cronenberg but I wonder if what's really new about Titan is also the possibility that uh, a human, you know, Congress with a machine or with a car actually is reproductive. You know, something with, you know, I feel like most of Ballard always has this kind of terminal masturbation quality to it, right? Or people are going to just like go through these kind of autoerotic, you know, pun intended um, <laughs> cycles until they just crash into a wall, right? And it's even called crash yeah. for that reason. And maybe Cronenberg too, you know, has a kind of ambivalence about whether a human Congress with a machine could be reproductive or if it'll just cause like tumors in your own brain, like in Videodrome or, you know, the brood is maybe more ambiguous, but the children are still kind of human in some way. Whereas something like Titan really is true reproduction with a machine in a way that I haven't seen done before. Absolutely. There, there's a productivity to it, right? There is a, there is a new kind of thing that, that gets created. Um, but one that at the end is also still you look at it and go that yeah that's still recognizably in a way it's still recognizably what we think a baby a newborn baby should look like on film right mm-hmm. so it's like yes there is a new kind of thing starting to emerge but the there is not like breaks there is just kind of reinscriptions. Mm. it's evolution right it's like a meaningful step but in a process that is continuous yeah precisely yeah, that, that's fascinating. I mean, I wonder also about, you know, this idea of like the turn of centuries, you know, if like our generation represent, you know, being millennials, I guess, represents like coming of age. And, and I think um, Julia Ducournau is, is kind of, you know, I think she was born in the 80s too. So like the idea of people who are coming of age at the end of a century and then coming into their own at the start of a new century, you know, so if we go back to the 19th century, um, you know, I, I worked for a while on this film about you know, Paul Schreber. Do you know the story about he was like a German Supreme Court justice? Do, do you know about him? Oh yeah, I the, I have I have definitely heard the name. Yeah, I mean he's just an interesting case study of you know the turn of the century in Europe, right? Which you know relates to something like Dracula certainly, and sort of um, the way Marxism begins to spread and the sort of what would lead up to you know eventually the Soviet Union. You know, so he's something like a Supreme Court justice, a very high-ranking judge in Germany in the 1880s. And then he has this like total nervous breakdown or mental breakdown and is confined to a series of institutions in Germany. 
And while he's there, he wrote this book that you can still find called Memoirs, or sometimes translated Memories, of My Nervous Illness, which is basically this elaborate vision of his body being transformed by rays that he says God is zapping him with through the universe, which are changing his nerves to turn him into a woman, and that he's going to be like the new Virgin Mary who, which actually is basically body horror, who will become pregnant with God's, you know, new children, and that he's going to give birth to the true human race, which has some kind of proto-Nazi stuff in it, right? But he's going to replenish Germany and clear away what he calls the fluktische Hingemachsmänner, like the hastily, hastily thrown together <laughs> or people, which are sometimes yes. called the flirting trash people. So, so you know, and he's a fat, you know, and then Freud wrote a case study about him and he presented this book. <laughs> this is the best part, that he presented his book hearing for his release and the judge read it and he's like dude if you think this proves you're sane you're even crazier than we thought um you know and he's this fascinating sort of cusp figure you know the book comes out basically in 1900 or late late 1890s and he's this interesting figure because on the one hand he represents you know resurgence of a kind of paranoia and mania that would certainly define the early 20th century and especially in germany but also he's picking up on this anxiety about technology because his whole stuff about rays is in the moment when x-rays are actually beginning to be used in this idea that, you know, people can see inside your body for the first time or that you could be, you know, you have telegrams and that kind of stuff that, you know, remote communications becoming possible. And there's just something fascinating about that moment when he's, op- you know, when I was working on the film, I researched a lot of who was born in those years. And you had these weird overlaps where you have like, you know, Einstein, Hitler, Heidegger, you know, all these people born in like the same moment and like growing up in these years who would then come to define obviously the the coming years. I'm sure, you know, Lenin was born around then. Like, you know, there's something about the way these things are spreading through the world that also relates back to what we were saying about, you know, Oscar Wilde or or um, Edvard Munch, Jack the Ripper. There's something about those moments where it's like, you know, a weird dovetail that I almost feel like we're living through the second iteration of that now i suddenly realized where i knew the name from and it's from uh anti-oedipus by uh, mm. Deleuze and Guattari. that makes sense i'm sure they had a field day with him <laughs> uh who, who mentioned that he mentioned the judge's solar anus um which is uh, a fantastic bit right towards the beginning of uh, anti-oedipus I think. if anyone had um, a solar anus it was it <laughs> but yeah i actually think this is a really i think this is a really kind of a uh, kind of crucial point which is the the idea of new, despite despite the kind of presumed closure, and I, I and maybe this is part of the reason why uh, Tatane is so um, kind of effective, is it is it ends with the emergence of a new subject, right? This this new kind of being, this new this new mode of life that finds a, it's you know birthed in in viscera and motor oil, uh, and in a way, there's something about it which which is really really fascinating because you would expect it to be a kind of completely digital form right you'd expect you know you'd expect it to be like something almost non-material it's 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 something that just exists as data but uh i think there it it kind of speaks to the ways in which isn't it a cadillac right the 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 parent Oh, I don't remember. I remember the car I was like painted in flames and there's an amazing shot where they show it from the top where, she, you know, that you see her through the uh, sunroof and the flames are just all around it. 
Um, but yeah, I think you're right. It is a Cadillac baby. Uh, and I, I'm sort of like, there's, there's an interesting, th- this idea of like that, the, the kind of productive capitalism, of, let's say like the post-war settlement up until uh, wherever you want to draw your line, beginning of, of like neoliberalism and increasing financialization, specialized in that kind of production, right? There's these, this, and that sort of that mode of productive capitalism is still fetishized. It's still is this is part of the nostalgia, right? You know, this idea of like, well, things are still the same. We still make and sell things when, in fact, we don't really. Um, and I think that's an element to the ending as well. Yeah, that like to die in the process of producing something tangible is still almost a martyrdom or there's there's something heroic about that whereas the deeper fear is that you just spend your life producing nothing that anyone can track or notice or that you don't even know what it is and then you just disappear and haunt the internet like we were talking about but have no no corporeal <laughs> legacy and to do that you need some you need to seduce this man by think making him think that you're his dead son you know, to, to to make all of this like come together and give it meaning and bring some sort of source of warmth and empathy to the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, in, in a in a moment that actually feels maybe the moment in the film which feels most weirdly kind of tender. Yeah, yeah. It really got me this second time around. Like I was very uh, affected by the movie in the way that seeing it the first time around, I was not. Well, I think it's hope and fear, right? That you you know the fear in the movie mm-hmm. is obvious, but the hope that there could be a tender moment between these characters is what makes it moving. They found love at the end and it felt real. Yeah.